Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Father, we thank you for those words we've just heard read to us. And we thank you for Luke's recording of them all those years ago. And so we dare to pray that the same Holy Spirit who prompted Luke to write them down would enable us to hear afresh the voice of Jesus today. Amen. One of my wife's favourite programmes is Long Lost Families. Some of you may have seen it. Um, it's a programme in which Davina McCall and Nikki Campbell, pictured there, reunite families after long years of separation. And I have to say, uh, it's actually pretty good TV and it's certainly very moving. Well, in our reading this morning, our Luke 15 reading, um, we've heard what to many of us will be a very familiar story of a reunited family, told by Jesus, quite possibly um, fictional in Jesus' mind, uh, as against the Davina McCall, Nicky Campbell thing, which of course tells the story of real families. But whereas the TV one is really there for our um, entertainment, it's to make us feel good, Jesus told this story, and Luke recorded it under the inspiration of, of the Spirit, not just for our entertainment, but because there was something profound here that we need to hear and understand. In other words, Jesus' story of a family reunited has something to say to the church at all time. In other words, something to say to us in 2020 today. And I want to be honest with you this morning and say that this is a parable that's been very much on my heart and mind um, partly because of my role working for CPS, but partly because of what I see in the nation. Uh, I'm a member of General Synod, so I engage with conversations in those kind of places and whatever. Uh, and I really do believe that this particular story has something um, very focused uh, and necessary to say to us um, as a church at this time. And so Frank's very kindly said, I can share one or two of these thoughts um, with you. And perhaps the most helpful way to do so is simply by looking at the characters in the story and ask, what is it? that we can hear as we observe what they say and what they do. And the obvious person we therefore have to start with um, is the boy. The boy who wakes up one morning and says to his dad, um, well, I'll tell you what, let's pretend it's as if you're dead. So give me my part of the inheritance and I'm going to go off and have a good time. And as I understand it, although that very rarely happened, it was actually permissible under Jewish law. And that's why the request was granted, and that's why he went off and did what he did. Um, but what we read in, uh, in Luke chapter 15 is that very quickly he became a lost son. Uh, and lost in lots of different ways. Relationally, he was lost. He was in a far-off country. Luke notes for us. Uh, no social media, no mobiles, no way of keeping in contact then. So relationally, he was lost to his family. He was lost in terms of his lifestyle. He embraced contrary behaviours to the Jewish background in which he'd been brought up. He was lost in terms of status. You know, the idea of working for a Gentile and looking after the pigs made him subhuman as far as a good Jewish mind was concerned. And at a very practical level, he began um, to be in need. He was lost. We're told, verse 17, he was quite literally starving to death. 
And it's interesting because there is a particular word that Luke puts on Jesus' lips in verse 24 and 32 of this passage, that the word lost, as used there, is a very particular word, uh, and it is used elsewhere in the Gospels and the New Testament um, to describe something or someone who is perishing. So in Matthew chapter 8, when the um, uh, disciples and Jesus are caught in a storm on the lake, the disciples say, um, we are lost. It's the same word. Actually, it's we are perishing. We are about to die. Jesus, do something. It's the same thing that um, uh, Jesus says in Luke 5. You know, if you put new wine into old wineskins, they will perish They will tear, they will fall apart. It's the same thing that Paul said to the sailors on board the storm-battered ship. He said, take some food, for not a hair of your head will perish or be lost. This is a a high-currency version of lost. This is not a temporary inconvenience while your sat-nav recalibrates. This is of eternal significance. And Jesus seems to be saying, well, this boy's gap year, if we can think of it that way, it started well. He's having a great time as far as he's concerned, but it's gone from good to bad and from bad to worse, and he is now perishing. You don't need me to tell you that there are lots of ways in which you could say we see lostness in our current and contemporary society. I came across some statistics not too long ago. 280 children run away from home or care every single day of the year. 27 schoolgirls become pregnant every day of the year. 75 children are added to protection registers every day of the year. 750 people call the Samaritans every day of the year. Those are the indices, if you like, of a society that is lost. Jonathan Sachs, former chief rabbi, once said this, Western civilization suffers from a strong sense of moral and spiritual exhaustion. Having constructed a society of unprecedented sophistication, convenience and prosperity, nobody can remember what it was supposed to be for. Lost. That's how he saw contemporary philosophy and culture. But I don't think Jesus is referring to those kinds of things when he talks about the boy being lost. He's not talking just about um, his physical state. He is talking about um, a lostness with respect to God. He is telling the story because he wants us to hear about the reality of spiritual lostness the reality of eternal lostness. And and if you doubt that's something that was important to Jesus, just have a look, for example, through um, Matthew's Gospel. Because time and time again, Jesus talks about eternity and lostness in eternity. Um, Incinerated chaff, trees cut down and burned, weeds pulled up and burned, bad fish thrown away, debtors imprisoned, wicked tenants, again and again and again. Jesus wants to say, do you know there is an eternal lostness And I'm here to usher in the kingdom that people might be found rather than lost. I came across a very interesting little um, um, sequence of memos that were passed down a company. And a memo went apparently from headquarters to general managers and it said this, Next Thursday at 10.30, Halley's Comet will appear over this area. 
This is an event which occurs once every 75 years. Notify all directors and have them arrange for all employees to assemble on the company lawn and inform them of the occurrence of this phenomenon. If it rains, cancel the day's observation and assemble in the auditorium to see a film about the comet. So the general managers then sent a memo to the normal managers which said, by order of the executive vice president, next Thursday at 10.30, Haley's Comet will appear over the company lawn. If it rains, cancel the day's work and report to the auditorium with all employees where we will show films, a phenomenal event which occurs only every 75 years. <laughs> Then the managers sent an email down to the department chiefs and it went like this. By order of the phenomenal vice president, at 10.30 next Thursday, Haley's Comet will appear in the auditorium. <laughs> in case of rain over the company lawn, the executive vice president will give another order, something which occurs only every 75 years. From the department chief to the section chiefs, next Thursday at 10.30, the executive vice president will appear in the auditorium with Haley's Comet, something which appear, occurs every 75 years. If it rains, the executive vice president will cancel the comet and order us all out onto our phenomenal company lawn. Finally, from the section chief to all employees, when it rains next Thursday at 10.30 over the company lawn, the phenomenal 75-year-old executive vice president will cancel all work and appear before all employees in the auditorium accompanied by Bill Haley and his comets. <laughs> Something gets lost along the way. And the reason I want to draw your attention to this story of this lost boy this morning is because I believe that the church is in danger of losing the reality of lostness. We lose it in terms of our understanding of what the gospel is. We lose it in terms of what we're about as a church. We lose it in terms of uh, what appears uh, in our diary, our church diary and our expenditure. We lose it in terms of what we pray for and don't pray for. Uh, and we lose it at a personal level as well. Because we find ourselves, uh, and I am as guilty of this as anyone else, I've got a large number of friends who would not call themselves Christians, some of them I've known for decades. I lose the reality that they are made in the image of God and loved by God, but right now they're not children of God and they are lost in the way that this young man was. If I could ask you a question this morning, it might be, who are you praying for? Who is on your heart and your mind? Who are you praying for? It's not your job to convert people, that's what the Holy Spirit does. But it is your job, and it is my job, to be aware of the reality of lostness, and to be praying for those who are lost. Let's think for a moment about the Father. We're told this, that when the boy awakens to his lostness, he decides to go home. And he decides to approach his father and say, I've done wrong. I don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve to be a son again. Just give me a job. Just give me somewhere to sleep and something to eat. But what we read is this, verse 20 of Luke 15. While he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran to him. What's interesting is there's nowhere in the telling of the story that Jesus explicitly equates this father with God. 
And yet all the Bible scholars and Bible commentators who have written on this say, do you know what, that's what's actually going on here. Jesus is telling this story, and what he wants us to do is to equate in our minds the actions, the response of this Father with the actions and response of our Heavenly Father. So what happens? Well, while he's a long way off, we're told, the Father sees him. How did that happen? It could only happen if the Father was looking out for him. There was an intentionality on that Father's heart. Every day, he'd have climbed up on the roof of his house and scanned the horizon to see if today was the day his boy was going to come home. Every day, he'd go to the end of the village and see if he could see on the dusty road any sign of his son coming home. Reminds me of Romans 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There was an intentionality there. A getting ready for when men, women and children might turn from their ways and come back to their heavenly father. Verse 20, again we're told that when he saw him, he ran. And apparently um, it was undignified for a man in the culture of the time to run. Apparently his mum could have done it, but his dad couldn't. Now, let's not get into an argument about the culture. That's just the way it was um, then. But we're told he ran because he was so excited to see his son coming home. More than that, we're told that he kissed his son. Uh, if, you, if you translate the Greek that the New Testament was written in, what it should say is he draped himself around his boy's shoulders. That's what he actually did. Got to remember, this is the boy who's just spent time with the pigs. So again, this is problematic to a good Jewish father. But he doesn't care. Because he's just so delighted that this boy has come home. And then we're told, verse 22, he puts on him a robe and a ring and some shoes, a sign of restoring him to his sonship. He's not going to give him just a job and a place to sleep. He's going to make him a son all over again. Now, I need to tell you this, that the people that Jesus told this story to did not expect that ending. We do, because I've set you up for it. I've told you about Davina McCall and Nikki Campbell and how everything ends well and you've read the story but the people who first heard that story didn't know it was going to end that way they actually thought Jesus would say at that point when the boy walked into the village the father would have reached for a big crock pot picked it up and smashed it in front of the boy it was a, sim- a symbolic gesture, gesture called the Kezazar and what that would have been saying to the boy and to everybody was you smashed our family apart with what you've done. And in just the same way that I can't possibly piece this pot together so we can't repair the damage that has been done. But you see, the father doesn't do that. And in telling this story and describing the father this way, Jesus reveals shockingly to the listeners how gracious and good and loving is the heart of God. Do you remember the story of the little boy who was painting at school and the teacher said, what are you painting? And the boy said, I'm painting God. And the teacher said, well, no one knows what God looks like. And the little boy said, well, they will when I've finished. (laughs) That's what's going on here. Jesus is painting a picture of what God is like. And folks, what I want to say to you this morning is this. 
This is an incredible piece of good news that God is like this. This is an incredible message for a lost world. This is a radical alternative to any other narrative you can find. Wherever you look, philosophically, religiously, culturally. This is a unique story. There is no one else who would want to match it, even if they could match it. This is the outrageously good news of the Christian message, that there is a God in heaven who looks for those who are lost and who embraces them on their coming to him. And I think this has got such immense practical down-to-earth value and relevance for you and for I. I know that not everybody has had a good experience of their fathers. But the next time someone asks you a question about God, or what do you think about God? What do you think God's like? How do you describe God? Do you know you could do a lot worse than simply turn to Luke 15 and say, God is like this. This is a good father And that's what God is like. If someone says to you, well, I know you go to church, I know you go to Emmanuel, um, I go to, you know, a temple, um, I'm I'm a person of non-faith, I've got a different kind of faith. We're all the same really, aren't you? Uh, I I find myself increasingly bold these days to say, well, um, we're obviously people of faith, yeah, but I don't think you would want me to say that you think the same as I do. Let me just show you why. Because no other faith, as far as I can see, wants to be like this father. For all kinds of different reasons. They want to see it differently. This, this story distinguishes and marks out the Christian message. It points to um, the uniqueness of the gospel. Or if someone says to you, why, you know, why do you go to church? It's a bit out of date in 2020, isn't it? It's two hours of your life on a Sunday morning you'll never get back again. That's what my hairdresser said to me the other day when we talked about exactly that same subject. He said, what, we were talking about what we did the day before. And I, he said he played golf. I said, why didn't you go to church? And he said, two hours, you know, he said, what did you do? And I said, I went to church. And he said, oh, sorry. <laughs> we had a great conversation. Why do I go to church? Because I believe that Luke 15 is true. I believe that there is a God who in the Lord Jesus has done everything that this father did in welcoming back his lost son. When you get stumped in any kind of conversation, here's a great story to go to. We've run out of time, so I really don't want to um, go through the, the third character in the story, the elder brother, but here's the suggestion for him. It's not so much that he was angry and got the hump and all the rest of it. The real thing about the older brother is he didn't know the reality of what the father said to him in verse 31. You can check it out later. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. I see church after church that is running on empty rather than running on full. And if there's an invitation to us this morning, it's to be filled afresh with God's Spirit. It's to know that we have a Heavenly Father who answers our prayers. It's to trust in the provision of God day by day. It's to lean on His Word that He might guide us in living our lives. We have everything in Christ that we need 
for a tank-full Christian walk. Not to say it's going to be easy, but a tank-full Christian walk rather than an empty one. And that's how the older brother was living. And that's how he got everything so wrong. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Father, we thank you for this amazing story told by Jesus, recorded by Luke. And we dare to pray that we might in our hearts be excited by this good news. And we might in our minds grasp afresh just what a unique and a wonderful message this is. And we pray that as we head into the week, you will enable us to look for opportunities where we can reach out to the lost and we can point them to our perfect Heavenly Father. And this we pray in the unique and the special and the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.